the 23rd Psalm. It is perhaps one of the most beloved, most quoted passages of Scripture in all the Bible. And at the center of the 23rd Psalm stands its author, David, one of the most pivotal figures in all of human history. In his uh, message just a couple of weeks ago at New Community, Jeff described David this way. He said, David had the musical talent of a Beethoven, the literary skill of a Shakespeare, the hand-to-eye coordination of a Peyton Manning, the political wisdom of a Winston Churchill, the military genius of a General Patton, and the poetry skills of a Nobel laureate. In short, he was a genius at almost every discipline. That's David. And when you look at David's remarkable life, there is one constant that is with him throughout. And so much so that he writes about it incessantly. And he embeds a reference to this constant in his life right in the center of the 23rd Psalm. And what is it? It is the fact that David had enemies. Psalm 23, 5 references it by him saying, in the presence of my enemies, in the presence of my enemies, he knew who his enemies were. He thought about them constantly. He worried about them at every turn. He cried out to God about them again and again and again, and he wrote about them throughout the Psalms, throughout his writing. He wrote about and thought about and worried about his enemies. If it had been up to him, he would have wiped out his enemies. He would have killed them all. He would have taken no prisoners, but of course that was not possible, even for David. And so he lived his amazing and privileged life with enemies all around, round about him. Now, if you do a word search in scripture of the word enemy or the plural enemies, it's amazing to discover the fact that it's used, those words are over 350 times, predominantly by David himself. Living with enemies apparently is one of the great themes and assumptions of all of Scripture. And I'm convinced it's one of the great constants and themes of our lives as well. And so, this morning, this question. It's actually a question I've asked a number of times of a a variety of groups this past week. Just to, to test out the response. And the question is this, for you to answer. It is, who is your enemy? Who is your enemy? If you had to name it, who is your enemy? In fact, I'd, I'd encourage you to take out a pen and a scrap of paper and write your answer to that question down. The responses I got this past week to that question from groups were, were varied all over the map. From me, I'm my worst enemy, to Satan, he's my ultimate enemy, to groups of people in my life, to inanimate things like cancer or storms. Who is your enemy? How do you answer that question? And I challenge you, Again, to, to write it down. There's, there's something powerful about naming what it is that brings fear and dread into your life. Something cathartic. Something helpful. 
That's why David, I'm convinced, constantly writes about his enemies. And references like this, see how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. He writes in Psalm 25, or all my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, he writes in Psalm 41. And again and again and again, referencing the enemies round about him. Even he writes about some of his closest friends who have become, in fact, his enemies. So in David's life, and in yours and in mine, enemies are a constant companion. And so the question I have for you this morning is, how do you deal with them? They are, in fact, not going away necessarily. How will you deal with the enemies of your life? Well, it seems to me there's four options. And, and they are this. The first option would be to make peace with your enemies. Many think that that's David's point in Psalm 23, 5, where he says God prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies where you could sit down and work things out with them. I say no. That, that is not the intent of David's words in Psalm 23, 5. David constantly wants his enemies away from him. He wants them defeated. He wants them dead. And, and David's enemies want the same of him. They want David away and defeated. And if they had the chance, the opportunity, dead. Sometimes you can work out your differences with your enemies. Sometimes you can't. Like when your enemy is Satan. You're not going to sit down and work out your difference. Jesus didn't do that with him. Or cancer. Or historically Adolf Hitler. Sometimes you cannot sit down and work out your differences with your enemy. A first option related to enemies is to make peace, and, and that's not always possible. A second option is to pretend your enemies aren't actually there. Like Mary Baker Eddy did, the founder of Christian Science. Christian Science, a, a Christian cult that was invented back at the turn of the 20th century, where Mary Baker Eddy, a sickly, struggling woman, invented this religion which basically at its heart teaches that nothing physical exists, which is very convenient when you struggle with this and struggle with that. It doesn't matter. None of that exists anyway. And so Christian science would teach that you, the physical you, doesn't really exist. The seat you're sitting on doesn't really exist. I don't really exist. In fact, I am a figment of your imagination. That's crazy. This exists. The physical world exists. And our enemies are very real. And the option to try to pretend that they aren't is not a valid option. A third option related to our enemies is to defeat them. Like, like the giants have done a couple of times in Super Bowls. Like, like Jesus did with Satan on the cross. Defeating our enemy is sometimes possible, but not always. Which brings us to a fourth option, a final one, and it is to find someone stronger than our enemy and stay close. 
I think that's the ultimate message of Psalm 23. Enemies exist. You can't always make peace with them. It doesn't work to pretend that they don't exist. You can't always defeat them. And so to stay close to one that is stronger than your enemy is the way to go. For us Christ followers, that's Jesus Christ, the ultimate strong one, the one who has defeated the very thing that frightens us and would be destined to destroy us the most, even our death. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Psalm 91. It's there that David describes life with the Lord in the midst of his enemies. Powerful imagery that he uses. I, I wish I had time to read Psalm 91 to you. I'd encourage you to read it through if you haven't for, for a while. Read it through this afternoon. What a great passage of Scripture. It's there in the midst of a frightening, dangerous, enemy-laden world that God is our shelter. He's our refuge, our fortress, our covering. Our shield, our dwelling, our rescuer, our deliverer, our savior. Psalm 91 goes on and on with powerful, tangible uh, imagery like that. That David has experienced and continues to experience. That you and I can experience as well. And so we raise our kids. And we work. And we play. And we worship. And we live our lives in the presence of our enemies... Sometimes to the point, as David describes in Psalm 23, of walking literally through the valley of the shadow of death itself. And as we do that, we fear no evil because the Lord is with us and he is the strong one. And in the midst of that, we don't just survive, we, we thrive. I, I think that's David's point in Psalm 23. Now, last week I preached at New Community and and took, we, together we took a look at verses 2 to 4 of Psalm 23. And it's there that we find David exhausted, spiritually thirsty, broken, lost, lonely, afraid. And in the midst of that, it's like God grabs him by the hand and takes him on a journey. And shows him and feeds him and nourishes him in powerful ways. And it's there that David finds rest and, and a quenching for his soul and restoration and the Lord's leading, and intimacy, and love. That, that's the first part of Psalm 23. I mean, when, when you start hearing words like that, no, it's no wonder that Psalm 23 is so beloved. But then in verse 5, it's like David takes things as good as the first four verses are up a notch. It, it's a remarkable verse, verse 5 of chapter 23 of Psalms. It's there in verse 5 with his enemies all around him where David describes God doing something extraordinary. Uh, In fact, totally unexpected. Um, Outrageous when you look at what it really is. Incredible. Way over the top. And David describes it this way. Really in, in three things. In three ways. God surprises David. The first thing he does and he writes in verse 5, is that God prepares a table for him, a place of belonging. A table is always that, where people gather, where you have a chair with your name. This chair was reserved for you, prepared for you, a place where you belong. And the question this morning is, do you know that you 
belong to God. He created you. He, he dreamed up great dreams for your life. You, you are his. You are wanted. You can be protected by him as you sit at the table that he has prepared for you. And, and you know what it's like to walk into someone else's home, to sit at someone else's table for dinner. You, you travel. You go. You intentionally do that. You you accept the invitation. You sit down. You, you are gracious. You, you don't sit down and start making demands. You sit there. You're quiet. You listen. You engage. And when the dinner's over, you get up and you say thank you. It's, it's, it's like that with the Lord. Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 3. Listen to this. This is an amazing passage of Scripture that I think captures the tone that David's getting at here. Do not fear I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, the Lord says. When you pass through waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Don't fear. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name, and you are mine. Powerful reality and truth that is in the Lord. And may you take him at his word there. May you sit at his table. He's prepared for you. Experience the peace and joy of, and pleasure of that, even though enemies are all around you. A second thing Dave describe it, describes here, David describes in verse 5 of Psalm 23, is that God then anointed his head with oil. That's getting at the fact that God honored him. I mean, how crazy is that? That the Lord God walked up to him with a bowl of oil and started to anoint his head with that, massaging that into his head. It was like Jesus going up and outrageously washing his disciples' feet. What an honor. It, it, was, it was too much for Peter to even comprehend or, or for the woman to come up and anoint Jesus' feet with oil. What, what an honor. Anointing with oil. It was and continues to be a powerful thing within the church. Do you know that he wants to anoint you? You are chosen by him. You are set apart for and by and for him. And so it's like the Lord comes up to you with this bowl of oil and begins to massage it in, loving on you, honoring you, showing to you and to all the enemies around you, ultimately, that if anyone messes with you, they have to get through him, that you belong to him. Isaiah continues on in chapter 43. He, he writes, Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I would give away whole countries to win you back to me. Countries like Egypt and Cush and Seba. That's how much God loves you. He would, he would jettison entire countries and nations to, to have you as his own. And so in the Father's eyes, you are precious and and honored, and loved, and chosen, and set apart, and anointed. That's what the word anointed gets at. That's you. You who have given your life to Jesus, you belong to him. Tony Campolo 
describes that, that thought, that imagery, that, that reality this way. He said it's sort of like God the Father up in heaven where every opportunity he gets, he pulls out his wallet and goes up to, to angels and said, have, have I shown you a picture recently of my, my mic? I, I love him so much. I, I'm so proud of him. I, 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 and he just sort of dotes like a doting grandfather, which I can certainly identify with having been one for the last half year, that, that madly in love with me. What a powerful, powerful reality. And so he sets a table for us. He pulls out a chair with our name on it. We sit down and next thing you know, he comes out with this bowl of oil and starts to massage it on our head and honoring us and just loving on us. And if that weren't enough, David wraps up this verse by describing what happens next. And he says that my cup at this table started to overflow. My cup overflows. The cup of of blessing was filled and then began to overflow. I mean, you think of a beggar sitting on the side of a road with an empty little paper cup and next thing you know, there's like gold and precious things just flooding over it. Now, he's not talking about tangible physical like money here. He's talking about things of the heart and receiving blessings from the Lord himself. And not only for us, but for subsequent generations throughout history. A little further on in Isaiah, Isaiah writes this. He says that the Lord says, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. God's promise is that your cup will be overflowing with goodness and mercy and grace and his unconditional love for you, and not only you, but for your children and your grandchildren and great-grandchildren and beyond. His, His promise, he is faithful. And so to be to be wanted and protected, to be chosen and set apart, to be filled and blessed. That that is a cry of every human heart. And it's here in verse 5 of Psalm 23, God says, I know that's the cry of your heart. I, I understand. And I'm not off in heaven somewhere just watching to see how all this works out. I am here with you, for you. I am here and I can be trusted. I want you. I will protect you. I've chosen you. I've set you apart. I will fill you. I will bless you. And he does that not because he has to, but because he he loves you. Like you would do for one that you love. He would do anything for that person. And so he is with you and will do that in your life as well. Even right here, even with enemies, frightening things all around. Keith Miller, in his book, Living the Adventure, relates a letter from a woman named Alice. And I want to close with this. She wrote, When I was a little girl, <clears throat> I put, was put in an orphanage. I wasn't pretty at all, and no one wanted me. But I can recall longing to be adopted and loved by a family as far back as I can remember. I thought about it day and night. 
But everything I did seemed to go wrong. I always tried too hard to please everybody who came to look over me and, and was driven away. I just drove people away from me. And then one day, the head of the orphanage told me that a family was going to take me home with them. I, I was so excited. I jumped up and down and cried, but the, the matron reminded me that I was on trial and that, that it might not be a permanent arrangement, but I just knew it would work out. So I went with this family and started to go to school in their town. I was a very happy girl, and life began to open up for me just, just a little. Then one day, a few months later, I skipped home from school and ran in the front door of the house but no one was home. And there in the middle of the front hall was my battered old suitcase with my coat thrown over it. And as I stood there and looked at the suitcase, it slowly dawned on me what it meant. They didn't want me. And hadn't, I hadn't even suspected. That happened to me seven times before I was 13 years old. And she goes on to describe what what that did to her and the implications of that through her life. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel just like that little girl, uh, alone, afraid, scared, not knowing what tomorrow is possibly going to bring, and it's probably, maybe, going to be as bad as yesterday was. But imagine being that little girl, and suddenly this, this, this father comes walking in and comes up to her and there she stands alone, rejected, dealing with everything that she's dealt with over the many years. And he says to her, listen, listen, I am here. You are wanted. I choose you. I will protect you. I will fill your heart with a father's love. That's that's me. I will do this. I am determined to be a blessing to you. Man, that's what the Lord does for you and me. That's what he did for David. And David writes about that in Psalm 23. That is the heart of Psalm 23. And that is the heart of the gospel. That God loves you so much that he didn't just stay away and see how things would work out. That he got up and came in the person of his precious Son, Jesus, in the midst of whatever it is you're going through, God can be trusted. And the question this morning is, will you, will you trust him? Will you let him minister to you? Will you let him love on you, protect you, and take you by the hand? May that, may that be true. May that be your experience. And may you trust them for whatever lies ahead. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the ways that you come to us. When we think all is lost, all is hopeless, you are there and you are the strong one and you have proven yourself to us again and again and again and especially through your precious son, Jesus. May you be with us. May we experience your generosity and your power and your love, whatever it is we're going through now. In Jesus' name, amen.